welcome. This is the third of the uh, history of anatomy. Uh, this one's entitled The Anatomization of Art, Perfected Anatomic Realism, and the Dissecting Habits of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo Buonarroti, a somewhat speculative podcast. I'm going to start with a couple of quotes, uh, one from Leonardo da Vinci's own Windsor Collection, also reported by Jean-Paul Richter in the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci. You'll perhaps be deterred by your stomach, and if this does not deter you, you may be deterred by the fear of living through the night hours in the company of quartered and flayed corpses, fearful to behold. <coughs> That's a, um, a quote from him on his dissecting practice. Stephen Jay Gould, in his book Leonardo's Mountain of Clams and the Diet of Worms, which is published by Harvard University Press, is a good read, says, quote, If Copernicus and Galileo had never lived, the earth would still revolve around the sun, and earthlings would have learned this natural truth in time. If Michelangelo had never lived, the Sistine Chapel might still have a painted vault, but the history of art would be different and humanity would be a good deal poorer. That's a nice quote, I like that. The illustrator of human anatomy, primum inter pares, was Leonardo da Vinci, 1452 to 1519, even though his notebooks on the subject were largely unknown until they were discovered in 1773 in the Royal Windsor Collection Library by William Hunter, then physician, um, extraordinary to Queen Charlotte. Um, there were many Renaissance artists who, for the betterment of their art, dissected human bodies as a rite of passage. But Leonardo and Michelangelo Buonarroti, 1475 to 1564, exemplified this tradition, albeit with very different approaches. Both artists shared patrons and ran in similar circles but they assiduously avoided one another, maintaining a contemptuous distance. Michelangelo dissected out of necessity, Leonardo out of passion. Leonardo's anatomies are artificially divided into an early Milanese and a late Florentine and Roman period, but it would be contrived, I think, to imagine that in the interim, anatomy was somehow not still one of his consuming preoccupations. Accounts of Michelangelo's dissections are more sporadic and anecdotal, and they don't really amount to periods of concerted anatomical study as such. His anatomical interests never as methodical as Leonardo's and not imbued with the same sense of wonder about how and why the different parts of the body fitted together. Now, for a particularly secretive artist, most people seem to think they know quite a lot about Leonardo da Vinci. Many are drawn to his art by his most intricate sketches of the workings and interior of the human body, just one of the legacies from an artisan genuinely and generally gifted in painting, sculpture, architecture and armament design, as well as being an accomplished musician. The traditional point of linkage between artists and human anatomy has been for centuries the rite of passage afforded by the drawing classes of painters and sculptors in intimate contact with the live nude, particularly the live male nude. 
and in the search to learn how to portray the human body with a natural realism, artists typically honed their craft, drawing not only from live models, but also from casts of severed and partially dissected limbs. There was an expectation that fledgling artists would attend the repugnant but well-publicised anatomisation shows of the straggle of foreign convicted criminals slated for execution, and artists could use these occasions for their drawing practice as valuably as any live sitting. Both Leonardo and Michelangelo would have heard the stories of a young Donatello, 1386-1466, travelling as early as the 1440s from his native Florence to Padua just to participate in dissections of a corpse. Donatello's Heart of the Miser is the earliest Renaissance gilt bronze which glorifies one of the cadaveric dissections he most likely would have witnessed. In that allegorical piece, he's carved one of the miracles of St. Anthony, as described in the, lot, in the Gospel of St. Luke, uh, with the saint remonstrating to a crowd gathered at the funeral of a rich man and exhorting them not to bury him in hallowed ground. St. Anthony provokes the crowd to have the man autopsied, the onlookers gazing into the open but empty chest cavity of the miser, whose heart, just as the saint had predicted, lay locked away in a safe with a man's money bags. Actually, it says really, where your treasure is, there also is your heart. That's a quote from St. Luke, verse 12, uh, 34. Donatello's bronze is the altarpiece, actually, in the Basilica of the Sant'Antonio, the Basilica of St. Anthony in Padua, and it was sculpted somewhere between 1446 to 1448. When you go into that church on the left aisle, opposite St. Anthony's tomb, there's actually a, fi a 1525 wall sculpture by Tullio Lombardo uh, of the same miracle. And in the chapter room, there's a 1511 fresco of the scene, which is painted by Titian's brother, Francesco Vicello. Uh, the painting, the, the, the little sculpture by uh, Lombardo is very accurate. You can see the split in the chest of the, wise, uh, of the uh, wealthy man. But in the painting, that's highly unrealistic and shows the miser's heart actually sort of being extracted from an incision that looks more like a laparotomy. It's far too low, really made almost in the middle of the abdomen. Um, as unpleasant as it was, the prospect of personal dissection for artists became cemented through some of the new academies, the Academia del Disegno in Florence, which was established in 1563, the Caracci Academy in Bologna around about 1580, and the Academia di uh, San Luca in Rome about 1593, all offering open anatomy classes and promising a hands-on instrumental dissection of corpses for budding painters and sculptors. But despite this extraordinary opportunity, given the odious nature of the practice, it wasn't unreasonable for Renaissance artists <clears throat> to seek teaching alternatives. The approach isn't any different today in the search for computerised cadaveric substitutes in order to avoid contact with the corpse. 16th century artists like Michelangelo actually favoured preliminary wax models of the human body, which could readily be twisted and moulded into the contrapposto poses which he loved so much and which are a common feature of his work. It's one of the sort of counterpoise 
places that you can draw a human figure which appears to transfer all of its weight onto one part of the body. And this affects the sort of foreshortening, twisting of axes and so on. So this needed to be practised using models or using cadavers for these particularly more complex perspectival views of human form. In 1600, the Florentine sculptor Ludovico Cardi, who was also known as Cigoli, 1559-1613, cast a two-foot-high bronze statuette of a skinned and perfectly proportioned body, what he called lo scorticato, or the skinned man, with the most accurate delineation of every muscle and sinew, which he then transferred from a normal-sized corpse to the model. These are the so-called écorchés, the French word meaning peeled, uh, which are a feature particularly of many art schools and uh, which really represent the flayed Saint Bartholomew, uh, who was um, skinned alive. The pose with one arm raised was, of course, homage to Michelangelo's David or perhaps to the anatomical images of Leonardo that few had been privileged to see. The posture echoed the anatomical imagery found in the manuals of anatomy uh, by both Vesalius and by his predecessor, Berengario de Carpi, 1460-1530. When Cigoli actually placed this small figurine of the skinned muscular man uh, on display in the Bargello in Florence, it caused such a sensation that anatomists and artists actually queued for hours to see it. And for then, from then on, those wax or bronze skin models, the écorchés, became, as I've said, the principal tools used for teaching students how to draw the human body. You can see them on the cluttered shelves of almost any painting of an art academia, accurately displaying the contours, textures, origins and insertions of the underlying muscles. And these perfectly proportioned little replicas were the aide memoir that precisely demonstrated the realistic line of pull of each muscle and that informed the artistic representations of their dynamic um, um, tension under the skin. Uh, Gigoli actually had constructed the écorchée after working with the Swiss surgeon Théodore Turquet de Mayerne, who was performing dissections on cadavers at the nearby Santa Maria Nuova Hospital. Um, one such, uh, of course, uh, image that uh, one can have uh, of the immortalisation of an idealised artist studio is the one by the Dutch engraver Cornelis Court in his 1578 Practitioners of the Visual Arts, where the uh, picture is dominated by an écorchée suspended from a rope, which could be pulled up and down like a punchinello puppet so as to stretch or cramp the muscles and limbs. Until Cigoli, however, many artists devoted towards the furtherance of their craft were, however, forced to dissect bodies. And it was the only way forward if they were ever to exploit the human interior for their own practical purposes. And it was Vasari's point of distinction of his contemporary artisans and the separation of those he thought represented the highest evolution into a divine grace. According to the chronicler of art, Vasari, at least the duty to emulate nature itself could only be a consequence of close study of the human form. In overcoming their natural antipathy to the practice, some artists 
became skilled dissectors themselves, exploiting their own personally performed anatomizations in an effort to achieve a greater natural realism in their paintings and sculptures. For those like Antonio Palawolo, Jacopo da Bartormo, Bartolomeo Torri, uh, Alessandro Elori, Vincenzo Dante in particular, who did a lot of dissection, the value of personal dissection lay particularly in its myology, its muscular arrangement, and in defining the disposition and the organisation of the musculature lying just beneath the skin. That particular perspective is what the anatomists really refer to as surface anatomy, even though it's a little bit subcutaneous, a practical expression of how the muscles would mould the body, position and form. But of course, Leonardo went a step beyond his fellow artists and in exploring his dead bodies and body parts, despite having no real established protocol with which to begin his dissections, he examined the corpses for their own sake. In Leonardo's hands, anatomical dissection was certainly the vehicle by which his art progressed, but it became something more, an opportunity to correlate the form and variation that he could find with an overarching proposal of function. Each sketched dissection, which in many cases he would revisit years later, reflected a philosophical approach then towards a grand scheme of understanding. To many, his, <clears throat> his repertoire of unfinished paintings, his folia of uncompleted projects and the stories of his abandoned mechanical endeavours to design municipal irrigation systems or divert rivers, colours our impression of the man. But the anatomical work actually accentuates a more philosophical approach towards the practical aspects of his eclectic interests, providing insight into his natural, even logically anticipated, progression of thought and experimentation. And I would uh, propose that it was this rationality, this Weltanschauung, as the Germans call it, or worldview, which permitted him both to compartmentalise and to integrate his other passions, which included the mechanism of flight, the movement of water, and the engineering of machines. All of these things were tied in much more thematically than I think we give Leonardo credit. Today, many accredit the prescient nature of some of his drawings, which anticipated flying machines or the armaments of war, perhaps to a more scientific basis than I think they deserve. But before delving into Leonardo's worldview as explanation of the driving force to his concepts of anatomy of the human body and to its singular influence on his art, it would serve us well to consider a little bit of his background and early development. There are innumerable biographies of Leonardo and many uh, that have examined his anatomical folia. But there's little beyond mere speculation that might hint at why he would devote large swathes of his life to the dissection of dead bodies. There are many, too, who paint Leonardo as the embodiment of a proto-scientist, even before science had successfully demarcated itself and its methodology away from the natural philosophies like metaphysics. But there's perhaps almost no other artist of his age, or any other for that matter, whose motivations and activities are more open to speculation than Leonardo. On this matter, even Einstein remained unconvinced of Leonardo's scientific credentials. In an interview with Alexander Moshkovsky on the history of science, Einstein summarised his view on Leonardo, saying that, quote, we are falsely led 
to regard slightly related beginnings, vague tracks, hazy indications which are found as evidences of a real insight. It was a 1920 interview. Now, to be fair, um, I think uh, regarding Leonardo's scientific credentials, uh, there are perhaps in, in his life two discrete periods of greatest anatomical study when he felt not only compelled to dissect corpses but to sketch his findings, an underpinning view that is expressed in the marginalia of his drawings of a functional perception of the body which did effectively predate the science of physiology. I think one can think of it that way. The first time he dissected at least part of a body was in Milan, where after acquiring a human skull, he started a special notebook in which to keep his anatomical drawings. And he actually triumphantly recorded the date, the second day of April 1489, noting down all the anatomical questions he wished to be able to answer through his dissections. And that contains 44 drawings or so. It's been designated as Manuscript B. Um... It was work he would only abandon when his patron, the Duke um, Ludovico Sforza, 1452-1508, would be driven from the city by the invading French. He takes up anatomy again whilst in Florence after the chance meeting in the hospital Santa Maria Nuova of a man claiming to be a hundred years old who dies with Leonardo's sitting vigil and whom Leonardo then dissects. And that latter period, then, between 1508 to 1513, is perhaps Leonardo's most productive anatomical phase, resulting in nearly 250 drawings that develop in part from his collaboration with Pavia's anatomy professor Marcantonio de la Torre, 1481 to 1511. At the height of their association, Leonardo excitedly describes the direction and extent of his dissecting skills promising a great treatise on human anatomy that he never writes. And many have speculated on the nature and style of such a project, looking at his drawings now and imagining how Leonardo in independent study might perhaps have even transcended his fine dissecting teacher, Donatore, who was considered somewhat of a dissection wunderkind. Perhaps the anatomy treatise was just another typical Leonardo venture that ran out of steam in this case deprived of the impetus Delatore might have provided if the dazzling young anatomist hadn't died of the plague at the tender age of 30 in 1511. Um, it behoves us a little, I think, raking over old ground and examining the early life of Leonardo to discover those seminal influences which might have driven him towards his anatomical dissections. In brief, such brilliance sprang from humble beginnings, which provided no real clue either to his prodigious talent or interests. Born on April the 15th, 1452, in Vinci, a small fortified village near Empoli, from which the family derived its name, his parents were unmarried. His father, Ser Piero, a notary, and his mother, Caterina, a young peasant girl. Ser Piero, recognising Leonardo's inherent drawing skills in a time when such prodigy was favoured and encouraged and where tutorship was inspired by influential patronage, approached a family friend, the famed painter and sculptor Andrea del Verrocchio, 1435-1488, to 
who apprenticed Leonardo and who schooled his artisans in a workshop style through exposure and participation, which included sculpting, painting and goldsmithing. Leonardo's contemporaries uh, were Lorenzo di Credi and Pietro Perugino, both of whom convinced Verrocchio that Leonardo should devote most of his time to painting. By 1472, Leonardo had gained entry into the Florentine Guild of Painters, but he became restless at the lack of opportunity he might have expected from his mentor, Lorenzo de' Medici, 1449-1492, I think perhaps coloured by the rumours of Leonardo's unacceptable sexual proclivities. We can, we can spend a second on that. It's possible that Lorenzo developed a hostility towards Leonardo after the painter was anonymously accused in 1476, along with uh, Leonardo di Tornabuoni, who was a cousin of Lorenzo's mother, of sodomising a 17-year-old male prostitute, a fellow called Jacopo Sortarelli. The case was brought for trial twice, but ultimately set aside for lack of witnesses, with Saltarelli having been also named as the victim in a similar previous matter. In Florence, actually, complaints concerning um, moral matters could be left in local receptacles, which were called tamburi, without signature. And despite the fact that practising homosexuality was a capital offence, the domiciliary relationships between Florentine artists uh, was actually fairly commonplace, and it was generally tolerated and widely known. So much so that German artists visiting Florence uh, would often refer to um, homosexuals as Florenzers. Leonardo might have felt aggrieved by Lorenzo not including him as amongst the other Florentine artists such as Domenico Ghirlandaio, Luca Signorelli, Sandro Botticelli, Pietro Perugino, who was his contemporary, to go to decorate the Vatican when Pope Sixtus IV made such a request for Florentine artists in 1481. Despite Lorenzo at other times also lending out Antonio Paolo Waller to Rome and the architect Giuliano de Maiano to Naples. He never commissioned Leonardo for work in other cities on behalf of Florence or in any capacity as a Florentine ambassador. And I would suggest that it may be related to this view about Lorenz, uh, about uh, Leonardo's particular sexual proclivities or um, interests. In Verrocchio's workshop, the young Leonardo had already been exposed to the aggressive but equally secretive Antonio Paolo Wallo, the older brother of Piero Paolo Wallo, both of whom would establish their own bottega or workshop in Via Dagnolo, literally down the road from Verrocchio. Leonardo would often visit and become close friends with both of the brothers, and it isn't difficult to imagine him being inspired by Antonio's constant boasting about dissecting bodies, Vasari writing of uh, Antonio that he quote-unquote, dissected many bodies and was familiar with the origins and insertions of muscles, unquote, even speculating that for his sketches, Antonio had laid out corpses one on top of the other to simulate the frenzy of battle. Leonardo would certainly too have appreciated the stories of Antonio playing with the mouths of his corpses and pulling them into sharp grimaces so that he could draw their expressions. The engraving for which Antonio became most famous, however, is a practice piece for how to draw the human form was, in my view at any rate, paradoxically, perhaps his most wooden work. The battle of naked or nude men as a metal cast was made by Antonio and then widely printed when Leonardo was just a teenager. 
The Paolo Wallo print had become the most famous teaching aid for artists, even when its front two antagonists in the battle engaged in a muscular battle are simply recto and verso mirror images of one another. Now, with our acclimatisation to natural art, this earliest picture seems pretty stilted, the path of Antonio's dissecting knife tracing out the bodies of the cast with a sort of brawny over-exaggeration. The Victorian art critic John Ruskin, 1819-1900, was pretty horrified by Paolo Wallo's hypermuscularity, as he was too with the earlier Leonardo anatomies, and Ruskin placed actually both artists and others on a blacklist for having defiled any aesthetic imperative to realistically portray a so-called homo perfectus. Um, in his criticism, Ruskin declared the anatomic emphasis on art as it was derived from dissection of corpses as, quote, a passionate excess where the artists polluted their work with the science of the sepulchre and degraded it with presumptuous and paltry skill. Ruskin included Paolo Wolo, Andrea del Castagno, Andrea Mantegna, and Leonardo and Michelangelo as amongst the worst exponents of art that he considered were polluted by anatomy. And sculptors which were overly based upon the muscularity of Ecorchés were also not immune to his criticism. Even inside this group there was criticism. Leonardo himself didn't equate himself with the so-called pittori notomisti, the anatomical painters, as he was certain they were overrepresented. Um, they had overrepresented the musculature, he wrote, more as, quote, sacks of walnuts than as human bodies. Uh, the anatomist Robert Knox, 1791 to 1862, also considered this kind of art an affectation, um, and really referring to particular 18th-century British artists rather derogatorily as belonging to an anatomical school. So not all of it was particularly liked by critics. Uh, the Battle of Naked or Nude Men by Paolo Wallo is available, or can be seen at any rate, in the British Museum. In Leonardo's approach to anatomy, there were long periods of lapsed activity, as I've said, which meant that he would return again and again to pages for corrections and amendments. If this creates an impression of chaos, then the pandemonium of images of limbs amongst placenti or the hindquarters of animals around vaulted ceilings and cathedrals or schematic pictures of rope and pulley systems with scattered mathematical calculations running up and down the proportioned sections of the body parts um, confuses the fact that Leonardo's thinking was actually highly ordered. Indeed, if we're to understand the disposition of his order, then first we must appreciate how Leonardo embraced in the formulation of his own personal perspective the philosophies of two other men, uh, the goldsmith Lorenzo Ghiberti, 1381-1455, and the architect Leon Battista Alberti, 1404-1472. Leonardo was a painter, first and foremost, who recreated a sense of natural realism and who re-centralised man within his artistic universe. This humanism guided the mechanics of his art, and he could only reinvent such an aesthetic if it was based upon some sort of underlying philosophy. Both Ghiberti and Alberti were already towering figures in the art history of Florence, and both affected Leonardo's sensibilities in different ways. 
I'll try and explain what I mean. If Ghiberti's influence on Leonardo seems less than that of Alberti, it might equally appear more directed. Ghiberti, despite carving Florence's exquisite baptistry doors, which Michelangelo had dubbed the doors of paradise, lost out to Filippo Brunelleschi in competition to construct the world's largest freestanding Duomo in Florence. And in his bitterness towards his rival Brunelleschi, Ghiberti never really quite got over it. But to Leonardo, despite the stories of obsessive jealousy, Ghiberti came across in spirit at any rate with a more endearing character than that projected in real life by the architecturally austere Alberti. Leonardo could find in Ghiberti's autobiography, which was loosely collated as his commentary, extraordinarily candid reflections at the end of Ghiberti's life. Um, in it, one could find uh, really uh, a reminiscential, peppered with homilies and prescriptions for how young artisans should conduct themselves. Ghiberti extols the crucial areas all artists should master, grammar, astronomy, arithmetic, and of greatest importance, geometry. It was a lesson Leonardo absorbed, and his most intricate pictures of the heart, for example, made just before he died, are described by him not in terms of its anatomy, but rather with the nomenclature of geometry and geography. And such annotation also lay in Leonardo's comparisons of architecture with, uh, with anatomy, the centre of any city, its heart, her roads, its arteries, the bedrock, its bones, and the rhythmical tidal flow and ebb of its coastal seas, the indrawing and exhalation um, of the breath. Um, the Ghibertian notion that art relied so heavily on geometry might today seem alien, except perhaps to a cubist. But in Renaissance Italy, there was a common language between men and disciplines that would have rendered his writing wholly interpretable and inspiring. Ghiberti believed in the rote mechanics of art and in the requirement for its practitioners to have dominion over its semantic and its mathematical structure. The subtext of the message, whichever stock one may place in the value of its component parts, is that the production of art is entirely teachable and that great art, or maybe even beautiful art, can be achieved by an obedience to a set of predetermined rules. When Leonardo began his close dissections of the heart and described the vortex swill of blood trapping back against the leaflets of its closing aortic valve, it was no whimsy that he aligned his dissections with his descriptors of the whirlpools and eddies he had seen in floods. Even if he hadn't hit on the universal mathematical formula, both were comparable arithmetic consequences of nature. And in one form or another, through a sense of perfected artistic realism, he spent the rest of his life creating and articulating that Ghibertian philosophy. No matter how theoretical Leonardo's artistic sense became, he could always accept the practical counsel of Ghiberti, which might have pushed him towards the cadaver in the first place, even if the advice was directed to sculptors. Ghiberti wrote that sculptors should attend the sections to discover how many bones are in the human body and the muscles and all the tendons and their connections. 
Ghiberti's words are traditionally translated as avere veduto notomia, attend to your anatomy, or actually that more in Italian means to have seen the anatomy. Veduto is the past participle of uh, uh, to see, uh, vedere. In so doing, he was a little more pragmatic than his contemporary, Cennino Cennini, 1360 to 1427, who wrote the open-ended remarks that, quote, a man has, and then he left a blank, bones in all, a in tutto l'uomo ossa, just leaving a blank, and leaving the number of bones blank to fill in for others in the future who'd be more knowledgeable. Extraordinary sort of thing, uh, in a sense, to write. As far as Leonardo was concerned, also in his description of the aorta and the the flow of blood at the top of the aortic valve. The sinuses above the aortic valve, which Leonardo described and drew, but he never published, like so many things, were only formally described by Antonio Maria Valsalva, 1666-1723, in the late 17th century. The mathematics of the vortex closure of the aortic valve, which Leonardo clearly discussed, needed to actually wait for sophisticated MRI imaging capable of mapping directional velocity around the sinus and confirming Leonardo's drawings of a glass model he had made which he filled with water and grass seeds. And actually quite recently researchers at Caltech constructing a glass model to Leonardo's specifications and using a pulsatile pump at the inlet were able to show with rather complicated laser imagery of discrete particle movement the exact vortex flow patterns that were identical to the fountainhead images of Leonardo's notebooks. So there is some extraordinary prescience there using new technology. By contrast, the impression Alberti left on Leonardo was more structural, the result of a perfect set of circumstances, one might say, for reception. It might reasonably be argued that Alberti kick-started the Renaissance off in Florence, recognising the importance of the ancients in architecture and bringing the rediscovered architectural works of Rome's greatest builder, Marcus Vitruvius Pollio, about 80 or 70 BC to around 15 BC, bringing that to life. Um, Alberti actually published a ten-volume set of Vitruvius's De Architectura, originally in Latin. With the fall of Constantinople in 1458, Mercenaries like Poggio Bracciolini effectively liberated the broad genres of books, books like Pliny the Elder's Natural History, Ptolemy's Cosmology, his so-called Almagest, and Galen's Treatises on Anatomy. They were each brought back from Swiss, German and French monasteries, where they'd previously only been available to an elite. And with the exponential rise of local publishing houses after Gutenberg invented his printing press around about 1440, the stage was set for a social transformation of the natural philosophies. Um, Gutenberg's new movable type had been introduced when Leonardo was a child, but by the time Leonardo first went to Milan in 1489, Venice already boasted a hundred printing presses, so it was an exponential revolution in printing. The Vitruvian architectural model which Alberti had revived became the new ideal that he was confident could be reproduced in any Tuscan building on any Tuscan hillside and which would, if only the rules of measurement were slavishly followed, emulate and then surpass the splendour 
of the Greek and Roman temples. Alberti extended his influence, devising rules for painting, sculpture and even poetry by translating the old ways into a new brand in the transition uh, of Italy from the Middle Ages through to her rebirth or renaissance. And in so doing, he brought artisans together in order to frame not just how um, art was made, but also what represented the contemporary aesthetic. What could be measured in buildings could also be divined within the symmetry of the human body, proportions deconstructed in his uh, De Statua for sculptors to adhere to, the mathematical relationships he thought were evident in every living person. Actually appealing to Leonardo Alberti set out his unique measurement system for sculpture in his treatise, the De Statua, where he created a new quantitative system, which he called the pedis, or the grados, and the minuta, dividing the body into six feet, each containing ten inches, each inch ten minutes. And the book actually drew together Arabic terminology, which Alberti had found in books by the anatomist Avicenna, Ibn Sinha, which had only recently been translated into Latin, and he combined it with terminology for some parts of the body, which dated back to the 9th century. So there were unusual words in his system, like the furcula for the sternum, the spatula instead of the scapula, the cubitus for the elbow, which is where uh, a cubital fossa comes from, and these sorts of terms. Leonardo obsessively translated Alberti's directive in sculpture into a quest for a perfected realism in painting, and he used uh, to do that a dozen young male models from the Corte Vecchia to precisely measure almost every relationship in the human body that he could think of. Everything that could be gauged was recorded from the lines of the face, the distance between the tip of the nose and the end of the chin, the line from there to the height of the mouth or the length between the top of the ear and the vertex of the head. He made up a lot of proportions, but his drawings are full of these unusual lines and mathematical uh, proportions. Anything uh, was measured, traversing the entire body and filling his notebooks with the personalised calculations and ratios of what he called universale misura dell'uomo, the universal measure of man. Leonardo found further solace in Alberti's three-volume dissertation on painting, his Della Pittura, written around about 13, uh, 1435, which commanded that the human figure should represent only what is seen in nature. As Alberti put it, as nature clearly and openly reveals all these proportions, so the zealous painter will find great profit from investigating them in nature for himself, unquote. And where any artist, really with an anatomical familiarity, could, after first drawing the muscles and sinews, then clothe them with a mantle of skin. Alberti was a contemporary uh, uh, of a number of artists who'd uh, developed fame as copyists. Uh, in the future, examples of these included Andrea del Sarto and Da Pontormo, who we briefly met. Uh, but also Alessandro Allori, who had an abiding uh, affection for the work of his teacher, Agnolo uh, Bronzino, uh, who he referred to as Uncle Bronzino. And the type of art that was done, uh, subsequently Allori really being a student of Leonardo, was one um, in which paying homage to that uh, was 
first to draw the skeleton of the hands and feet and then in sequence attach the soft tissues to the bone and then ultimately the skin. And this sort of art from Alessandro Lori can be seen in the Louvre um, and it's, it's just an example of what Alberti was talking about. One of the pieces by Lori, for example, is now uh, also in the Uffizi uh, and uh, it recognised really not just Alberti's idea that things should be clothed in that way so that art was correctly done, but it actually comes from the book of Ezekiel, the prophet recounting a vision that he'd received of a valley of dried bones that had miraculously been resurrected with flesh. One goes to the original Bible uh, circumstances. Alberti says in his book, isolate each bone of the animal on this, add its muscles and then clothe all of it with flesh. Whereas the original thing from Ezekiel is 37.19, I will lay sinews upon you and will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and ye shall then know that I am the Lord. The point about all of this art was that it was intensely theological, but it was a mechanism of art and regarded as what was the national aesthetic of the Renaissance. In 1482, when Leonardo left Florence for his first sojourn in Milan, he would enter a new personal stability. Only war with the French in 1499 would interfere with his patronage and from then on trigger a peripatetic lifestyle which forced him and a small entourage to repeated movement and reorganisation. Leonardo's friend, the mathematician Luca Pacioli, 1447-1517, would follow him from Milan to Mantua and thence to Rome, along with the man Leonardo entrusted all his folia to, a man called Francesco Melzi, 1491-1570. Leonardo would then only move with his most favoured pupil, Gian Giacomo Caprotti da Orena, 1480-1523, a curly-headed muse, rumoured to be Leonardo's lover. Leonardo nicknamed the young man Salai, meaning the imp or the devil, or more literally the unclean one. And Salai can be recognised in pictures by his beautiful head of blonde wavy curls, his belli capelli ricci e gianellati, and he was the likely sitter for Leonardo's portrait of St John the Baptist. Salai also appears in Leonardo's anatomy notebooks, is the probable subject of Leonardo's rather crude, erotic drawing of a, a tumescent young man, the angel incarnate with an erection. Salai followed Leonardo until the master died, uh, and then he married uh, actually Bianca Coldiroli da Nono the year before his own death in 1523. He's also one of what we could call the Leonardeschi for those who've travelled to uh, Milan, the Leonardo-inspired pupils, who's represented at the base of the Leonardo Monument in the Piazza della Scala in Milan. It's just the other side of the Vittorio Emanuele Centre. Uh, the, the sculpture was designed by Pietro Magni in uh, Ormagni in 1872. The others on each side, if you go around that Leonardo at the top, and then four of his pupils, one of whom is Salai, the others are Cesare de Sestro, Marco Doggiono, and uh, Giovanni Antonio Boltraffio, who was a reasonable artist in his own right. We're getting off topic, so I'm going to move back to Leonardo's life. To get to Milan in the first place, Leonardo had already wheedled his way into Ludovico's court under false pretenses. 
writing his own recommendation letter and he modestly describing his as yet unproven talents in the design and manufacture of innovative military hardware. In his personal testimonial, Leonardo reassured the Duke of his unrivalled knowledge of bombardments, battlements and barricades, as well as of a means, still in his imagination, of constructing movable pontoon bridges for use in warfare. In a capsized appreciation of his own talents and without any discernible track record, Leonardo acts as his own endorser, proclaiming to be, quote, in all humility, the equal of any in architecture, unquote, an expert in sculpture who, quote, can do everything possible as, when he, as well as any other man, whosoever he may be, unquote. And then only lastly does he refer to himself as someone who could, quote, paint a little, unquote. Perhaps Leonardo's success with a frankly preposterous reference had appealed to Sforza, who most probably could see in its braggadocio a little of himself. If he had nevertheless been enough to, uh, this had uh, rather nevertheless been enough to grant Leonardo the post of what was called a pictor et ingenieris ducalis, a ducal painter and engineer, along with three other appointed ingenieri. Leonardo now had a wide bailiwick over the creative Milanese arts, formulating designs for Castello Sforzesca, refurbishing the city fortifications, putting on courtly pageants, writing poetry and composing songs. It's only much later as an old man with some regret that Leonardo admonishes himself to God for having at that time, at least in his own perception, neglected his art. But his distractions fueled wider concerns about a sense of personal perfectionism that would prevent him on occasion from handing over to benefactors works which he judged by his own standards to be incomplete or unfinished. The Mona Lisa travelled with him for years, the subject of his constant revisions and pentimenti. In the five years after he had left Verrocchio's workshop to start his own studio in Florence, things had been pretty bleak with only three private commissions, each ending disastrously, either unfinished or completely abandoned. His biographer, Giovanni Lomazzo, acknowledged that, quote, he never finished any of his works he began because so sublime was his idea of the art, he saw faults even in the things that to others seem miracles, unquote. So you get a measure of the sort of man that you're actually dealing with. Before Leonardo left Florence, there was the unfinished Adoration of the Magi, which had been commissioned by the monastery of San Donato, a scopetto, as well as an altar painting for the St. Bernard Chapel in the Palazzo della Signoria, which he agreed to do but never started. And there was a further unfinished St. Jerome in the wilderness. His travelling made it hard, actually, for commissioners to collect on his work, and it frequently forced him into litigation for recompense, with some of the court cases dragging on for decades. His eccentric and recalcitrant nature actually became legendary. Even members of the public would follow him on his trips to the Santa Maria della Grazia, where he'd been commissioned to produce his Last Supper on the refectory wall, just to see him stare at the fresco for hours, lost in thought, perhaps daubing a single brush stroke on it before leaving again. In exasperation at his delay in painting the face of Judas, the head prior complained to Sforza, only to receive the answer from Leonardo that if it were to be finished sooner than later, he might as well just simply paint all the apostles in the prior's own likeness. 
the story is testament to Leonardo's stubborn genius is perhaps as apocryphal as that of him finally finding the inspiration for his image of Christ and of Judas in the face of the same man. That's an unusual story, sort of a legend that uh, is that after a prolonged search, Leonardo discovered the face of his Christ for the Last Supper in a young chorister who was uh, called Pietro Bandinelli. And after some years struggling to find the face of Judas Iscariot, he's still doing the same painting, The Last Supper in uh, the Santa Maria della Grazia in Milan, Leonardo finally spots a man whom he thought was perfect. And it was was Bandinelli again, who had fallen on hard times and was now a street beggar whom Leonardo had not even recognised. As The Last Supper actually was painted between 1495 to 1498, that fact alone, I think, makes the story a little bit, bit implausible. And it may have come, actually, uh, from kind of oration notes of an American evangelist, uh, J. Wilbur Chapman. But it's, an, it's a delightful and interesting story at any rate. The prevailing impression from many uh, of Leonardo is one equally of a conceptual as it is of a practical artist, an image perhaps imprinted onto the public psyche by a red chalk self-portrait of the archetypal contemplative polymath. The long, luxuriant beard, the eyes combining an intelligent determination with a compassionate focus, I think serve just as well for our impressions of the real Leonardo as they do for how any other artist uh, might have actually painted the face of God. Once he had made up his mind to dissect cadavers, it was no accident that he commenced his studies with a detailed examination of a human skull. Splitting it axially like taking the top off of an egg, he ended his examination by sawing it lengthwise in half like a coconut in an earnest search for the bony seat of the senso comune, the soul, which he was certain lay at the point of intersection of a vertical line drawn through the orbital fissure and a horizontal marker strung from the top of the optic canal. He'd later inject the brain of an ox with molten wax and for the first time showed the ventricular system with its circulatory cerebrospinal fluid passing the lateral ventricles where he believed all sensations were processed out through the third ventricle, his presumptive location of the sensa comune, and then into the fourth ventricle where he thought the memory resided. <coughs> Both his early and late examinations of the brain exploited dissections he had performed of the neural pathways leading backwards from the retina of the eye. His observations led him towards an integrated scheme of optics. It was only through this method that the most accurate demarcation of the neuroanatomy of vision would, in his estimation, establish the sovereignty of sight over all the other senses. Anatomy would, for Leonardo, embed his certainty of the supremacy of painting over all of the other forms of art, and he spent a lifetime in this debate about what he called his paragoni, or comparisons, always measuring painting against sculpture, architecture, and even poetry. But he'd not invented that dispute. Far from it being a Vincian invention, the argumentative methodology was part of Greek mythology, Plato firmly placing the arts 
in dispute. Actually, Galileo subsequently took up the mantle for painting in a letter to Ludovico Cigoli or Cardi, as who we've already met, on the 16th of June 1612, quoting, that is Galileo quoted as, sculpture receives lightness and darkness from nature herself, whereas painting receives it from art, unquote. So there had already existed this dispute. The visual appreciation which perception afforded was for Leonardo the clearest evidence that sight was the prime sense, the eye in his estimation being far less subject than any of the other senses to tricks and deception. So the point about a lot of Leonardo's anatomical studies was to confirm the nature of the visual pathway and then to confirm that as the supreme sense. In other words, painting over a sculpture, for example. He filled his notebooks with example after example, what he called his dimostrazioni, his demonstrations, in proof of this point. At every place, his art executed as an emulation of observable nature, which could only be discerned through a visual acuity. Good art, he thought, should form an instantly believable optical effect that settled onto the eye and into the mind of the observer, at once familiar, pleasing, beauteous and perfect. Every visual experience was permanently etched into the memory, but the retention by any of the other senses of each individual event, he argued, simply faded away by comparison or by denigration. Although he articulated as much on many occasions, his view can even precisely be pinned down in time. Of the sculptor, he said, the marble dust flowers him all over so that he looks like a baker. He uh, remarked that in a spirited debate set down for the record one Friday evening on the 9th of February 1498 at the Castello Sforzesca. It was an argument pitting painting, sculpture, geometry, architecture, music and poetry against one another in one more of his interminable tests of superiority. In the calculus, by the end of the evening, poets actually came pretty distant last because, so he thought, they laboured incessantly to communicate <coughs> what painters achieved with ease and simplicity. That's the same sort of argument that had been going on for centuries over which is the preeminent craft capable of providing some elemental anchor of artistic beauty, some kind of definition of the aesthetic, and in so doing, being an art form that is capable of transcending the limitations of its own medium. From then on, Leonardo's stated aim was, quote, to paint man and the intention of his soul in all attitudes and movements of the limbs, unquote, elevating painting from a mechanical to a liberal art. Everything with Leonardo was tied in with his central themes. A practical consequence of his anatomical study of optics was a redefinition of perspective in painting, and for Leonardo, such a reassessment had a history. After being commissioned by Pope Sixtus IV to build his tomb in San Pietro and Vincoli, Leonardo's old teacher, Antonio Paolo Wallo, proceeded in his design to include the new muse, which was Perspectiva, amongst his portrayal of the seven liberal arts. The representation of linear perspective within a painting had been one of the achievements of the age, 
and it had certainly been established just before Leonardo was born, using a technique which began in the most beguiling way when Filippo Brunelleschi first painted the Cathedral of Florence by placing a small pinhole in the centre of the canvas and holding a mirror at arm's length in front of the painting. With that very simple optical trick, it was possible to tilt one's head looking this way and that, and through the magical powers of a mirror, the time something that was thought to contain its own memory, see Brunelleschi's Basilica in all its solid beauty. If a date can effectively be ascribed to the discovery perspective, then that was really the first real impression of a perspectiva artificialis and the conceptual beginning of how painting might be rendered more lifelike. Like everything else in Renaissance Florence, however, the discovery of a scientific basis for perspective turned out to be some sort of rediscovery of an ancient tenet with its supporting concepts really known since Ptolemy. That perspectiva naturalis, if we want to call it that after all, was the study of optics to which Leonardo had independently turned his attention, but which had occupied the mind of the 11th century Arab mathematician Al-Hazen ibn al-Haytham, born 965, died 1040 AD, and which could be found in the writings also of Roger Bacon, 1214 to 1294, and the English cleric John Peckham, 1230 to 1292. A lot of this optical information, without the dissection of the neuroanatomic pathway, uh, had been already described in the 13th century. But using the simplest experimental methods, holding objects near and far to the eye, recognising the shift in clarity of each of these, it was already understood that light entered through the pupil and landed as a reproducibly recognised image onto the retina. These things had been known 200 years before Leonardo was born, and Peckham's book, The Perspectiva Communis, written sometime between 1268 and 1278, was well known in Leonardo's time, as were some of Alhazen's little optical tricks. No doubt Leonardo would have seen a copy of Peckham's Perspectiva when he visited the mathematician and mystic Fazio Cardano in Milan around 1490, because Cardano was the first in Italy to have Peckham's book printed. Cardano would have also been aware that Leonardo was studying the anatomy of the human body and of his interest in the structural anatomy of the eye. And Cardano was likely the first to bring to Leonardo's attention the riddle posed by Vitruvius of how to construct the perfect dimensions of a man that could be encompassed simultaneously within a perfect circle and a perfect square. Now, that so-called Vitruvian man, the riddle of Vitruvius, was posed in his De Architectura, where he had written, quote, for if a man placed flat on his back with hands and feet extended and a pair of compasses centred at his navel, the fingers and toes of his two hands and feet will touch the circumference of a circle described therefrom, and just as the human body yields a circular outline, so too a square figure may be found from it. Leonardo's iconic pictorial solution is that Vitruvian man. Uh, it's actually not mathematically possible, given its reliance on the irrational number pi. And part of the solution actually depends upon the golden ratio, which was first described by Euclid, which is the ratio between the radius of the circle 
and the side of a square. It's approximately about 0.618. As part of his explanation, Francesco di Giorgio compiled the so-called Trattato di Architettura Civile e Militare, which was designed to show this proportional relationship between the human body and architecture. So there was supposed to be a kind of Albertian similarity to that, which appealed um, to uh, Leonardo. Since Leonardo's Vitruvian Man, as it has become known, has become such an iconic image, imprinted as much onto tablecloths and T-shirts as it is into the collective consciousness, it's worth considering his approach if the circle is a representation of the divine, the square, the earth, an archetypal man should fit perfectly into both worlds. The solution to the problem had eluded Leonardo's friends, the architects Giacomo Andrea da Ferrara and Francesco di Giorgio, but was solved by Leonardo, who understood the fundamental mathematical difference between the centre of gravity and the centre of magnitude, and who simply placed the navel of one of his perfect men slightly lower than the other. It was a direct extension of his love of mathematics and of anatomy, and it cemented Leonardo's reputation as more than an artist. He was now a geometer and a problem solver, and someone who it was recognised understood what was called the Cosmographia del Minor Mondo, the microcosm that was the human body itself, and its obedience to universal and macrocosmic uh, laws. These riddles of linear perspective which marked the start of the Renaissance, were not invoked by Brunelleschi only for artistic purposes. The invention of perspective, which was so important for Leonardo's anatomic realism, was also devised in order to satisfy the theological mind. If the images in Catholic churches were the visual representations of the Gospels, perhaps rendered there for the simpler folk unable to read even in the new era of of the printing press, then the church art emerging from the Middle Ages actually proved wholly inadequate for that purpose. It had, in the words of the Archbishop of Florence, Antonino Pierozzi, 1389-1459, shown, quote, oddities which do not serve to excite devotion. The images that were produced by the Byzantine artists were just wholly unrealistic. And like the philosophy of Aristotle, the church needed to co-opt the new perspective as part of its own theology. For Pierozzi, later canonised as Saint Antonine, linear perspective was, quote, a spiritual geometry, unquote, and reproducing and channelling it was the way that, quote, the prophets conversed with God. This was the importance of art in displaying to the illiterate the nature of the Gospels, but in a realistic manner. If the art would be realistic, then the message would be equally realistic. That is the way one could appreciate it. It was a theological confirmation of everything Leonardo would have believed and one more influence on his own philosophy um, of art. It was no coincidence, for example, that the dedication of Alberti's Della Pittura was to Brunelleschi. That makes sense. For Leonardo, Alberti too was just as much alive as Brunelleschi. In search of a three-dimensional world on a two-dimensional canvas, Alberti's grid, which ran horizontal and vertical lines across paintings, had created what was called a visual vanishing point, which is how art is made everywhere, where the parallel horizontal lines appear to meet one another in the depths of a painting. That's Albertian, that's where that comes from. And it was a technique used by Leonardo 
for his preliminary sketches and which can be seen in a lot of his unfinished works. The Saint Jerome is a classic example of that. Much to the joy of Leonardo and his friend the mathematician Pacioli, Alberti's rules of drawing and painting had rendered what was once considered divine into a prosaic matter of geometry. It was only through the study of anatomy, however, that Leonardo was able to integrate and apply his new styles of perspective to his paintings. Only Leonardo would unify the measurements of body proportions with a scientific study of anatomy and of optics, enhancing a broader appreciation of perspective and its more pragmatic application. But slavish devotion to simple linear perspective seemed to Leonardo to render paintings staid and almost overdefined. His epiphany was in realising that perspective would also be influenced by the way both colour and clarity were viewed. He extended the nature of perspective. And these different perspectives had been right there all along, he had said, in the way the protuberances of the Greek sculptures captured the rays of light and in the manner in which their shadows were refracted. Under Leonardo's hand, perspective became more than merely placing people in the right dimensions or protracting Alberti's imaginary point of focus, the vanishing point. After all, artists like Giotto and Masaccio had done that sort of thing a hundred years before, and it was pretty old hat. But by studying the structure of the eye, Leonardo understood the acuity of perspective in the way light is refracted at surfaces, and he appreciated the manner in which things and people disappeared into the distance, making their features less and less distinct. He completely revolutionised art in this regard. And both of these observations uh, made dramatic changes uh, to the forms of art. He realised that the vibrancy of colours begins to fade with distance. These were the inspiration for his descriptions of the new canonical painting techniques chiaroscuro and sfumato. One, the chiaroscuro, defined the borders between light and dark, and the other, sfumato, uh, the blurred mechanisms in which the colours attached to subjects could bleed into their background. And in his new rules, the hand mix of oils blended unlikely bedfellows of colour. Nearby things took on a greenish hue, those more distant, like the horizon, a particular blueness. So now the subject and the landscape vied for primacy of place. The curls and colours of the Mona Lisa's hair became as important as those on a drape or dress and were reproduced and manufactured in the swirl of a tree or the climb of a mountain. For Leonardo, foregrounds became backgrounds and distractions turned into circular points of focus. His paintings became capsized pieces of technical wizardry, where following his anatomical dissections of the eye, his chiaroscuro, for light and dark and shadow, was able to achieve more illumination through the working of shadows than by the rendering of light. Without his anatomical examinations of the skull and of the eye, he boiled an eye, for example, so that he could examine the vitreous component of it, like sort of soft-boiling an egg, Without all of that, he wouldn't have understand the, understood the way optics influenced his paintings. He wouldn't have developed these new canonical text, uh, techniques of art. And as a result, we would have had no Leonardo uh, paintings and no advancement of art 
in that way. So I'm going to conclude on this. We're going to enter into the second part of um, uh, this particular uh, study, uh, which is the anatomization of art, uh, and that's in the next podcast. Thank you.